You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Jeffrey, great to get you back on Real Vision. It's been a while. I think the last time you spoke was with Grant, um, and it's really good to have you back. Yeah, it's good to be back. It's been a long time, as you say. Yeah. So I would love, for the benefit of people, you know, you've had an incredible career, and I'd love to hear, if that's okay, just some of your career, you know, how you started and how you got where you are today. Because, you know, a lot of the time you get interviewed for three minutes, and it's really good to hear, you know, how you think and what you do to get to the conclusions you get to. Well, I got into the investment management business by accident, actually. I didn't know what it was. Um, I was didn't really have a career going. I was uh, trying to find myself. You know, that was when I was in my 20s, early 20s. And I saw a TV show that was called Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, <laughs> which is by this guy named uh, Robin Leach. And I never watched the show. It just happened to go on. I had a a TV set, it was black and white. It didn't have a dial on it and he had pliers to turn the station because it was all beat up. And I had a wire coat hanger for an antenna. And I only got three stations in those days, uh, ABC, NBC, and CBS. And Lifestyles of Rich and Famous came on and they said, we're gonna count down the top paying professions, the top 10 paying professions. I thought, oh, this will be interesting since I'm looking for direction in life. And number one was uh, investment banker. And they said, you have to be very hardworking and you have to be extremely analytical, but it's actually a very lucrative profession. So I decided then and there that I was going to be an investment banker, but I didn't know what that was. So <laughs> I went to the uh, yellow pages back when there were phone books and I went to the yellow pages and looked up investment bankers thinking that I would find some local investment banking outfit in Southern California and I would get a job there. But as it turned out, there aren't any listings in the yellow pages for investment bankers, but there were listings for investment management. And so I figured it's got to be sort of the same thing. And so I uh, ended up sending a couple dozen resumes with a very aggressive cover letter to the firms that had a, a bold-faced ad in the yellow pages. <clears throat> and I actually got three, three replies. Uh, most of them didn't bother replying to me. And one of them was for a job interview, and I ended up going to that interview, and they asked me, um, what do you think, you've got a very interesting mathematical background, what do you think you could apply that best to, uh, equities or fixed income? And I said, uh, I don't know what those things are. And the guy almost fell off his chair that I was interviewing with, and he said, well, equities, that's stocks, fixed income, that's bonds. And I didn't know what bonds were. So I said, oh, I want to do stocks. And it turned out that they needed more help in the bond department for a quantitative person than in their, in their equity division. So I started uh, in this tiny little bond department. And it was, a, it was really little. It was like four people in the entire bond department. And it was really just a necessary evil. Uh, in those days, we're talking about the early 80s, there were a lot of what we call balanced accounts. So pension plans would give their money to a manager and they would do stocks and bonds and allocate between the two. And it was really a stock operation. The bonds were a necessary evil. We just bought 
treasury bonds mostly, a few corporate bonds, all very, very low risk and mundane stuff. And it just turned out that my background was kind of perfect for understanding the kind of bond math stuff. And within a week, I'd say I knew more than the people that were running the department because they were they were just placeholders, really. Right. And I thought I was kind of doomed because it was clear to me that they didn't know what they were doing. But as I learned later in life, that's actually opportunity. That's what opportunity looks like when you're working for somebody that's really in over their head. If you can uh, you know, help them out and lend a hand, you actually become very valuable. And so I started uh, running money. And within six months, I was given uh, the Chrysler pension plan portfolio to run. Wow. Uh, which is a few hundred million dollars because uh, it was a very sensitive account and everyone was afraid to screw it up. And so they ended up giving it to me with six months of experience. As it turned out, uh, I was really good at it. <laughs> so uh, I ended up just doing more and more stuff and uh, learned a lot about mortgage-backed securities, which were a very rapidly growing area in the late 80s. And it turned out that I had a knack for it and started a mortgage-related, uh, mortgage-backed securities-related investment program. And about five years later, I was in charge of the entire uh, fixed income situation, right from junk bonds through treasuries, mortgage-backed securities, and all that stuff. And uh, those, were, those were good times because interest rates were relatively high. The markets were really inefficient. I mean, compared to where you are today, it was so inefficient. There were, there were simple securities like Ginny Mays that... Uh, would trade with with a one point sort of discrepancy in the market, which was a big deal in bonds. So someone would be offering a bond at 99 and you were able to buy it from somebody else at 98. You could actually just flip it from one broker to another, actually. You couldn't do anything like that today with all of our AI and electronic trading and all that. But that's what happened. And so I ended up, <clears throat> as luck would have it, I had the best track record for many, many years in the entire industry. And so after a while, uh, that attracted a, a pretty decent uh, client base. But what really uh, set off my career to, into like a, a retro rocket was calling the credit crisis. I was very vocal in 2006 about the stock market was going to crash and the subprime market, uh, the quote that was carried on five continents that I gave at a major conference in June of 2007. When people weren't fully aware of how bad things were about to become, I said, Subprime is a total unmitigated disaster, and it's going to get worse. And <laughs> that got picked up, and within weeks, really, um, Countrywide, which was one of the largest originators of mortgages and subprime, was bankrupt. And of course, Citigroup was essentially needed a government bailout, and Bear Stearns went under, and we all know, you know it's all in the history books. But because I was in the mortgage market primarily and completely sidestepped the entire debacle, it left me in a position when things got really washed out in 08 and into 09 to deploy massive amounts of capital, tens of billions of dollars into the things that had been thought to be safe and then started to trade at 40 cents on the dollar because there was such a huge supply demand imbalance and such ugly uh, fundamentals. I was able to deploy all that. And so I had this awesome year in 2009 as well. Uh, riding the bounce back. And so at that point, I think people realized that uh, there might be something going on here that's worth investing in. And that's <laughs> when I really started to uh, get a tremendous amount of exposure. And then we started double line and we had the best results right out of the box in the industry. 
uh, for a few years. And so it was easy for the clientele to just say, this is this double line thing is fine with me. And uh, that's, that's how it ended up happening. So obviously, as you go through your journey, you're going to make mistakes. What was the first mistake that made you realize, okay, there's a lot of things I need to learn still. So when you're going way back, talk about some, some of these mistakes, because that's where all the learning lies, right? Being right, yeah. Yeah. you learn less from actually being wrong. Yeah, um, it's, it's kind of funny. Uh, the very first big trade I did was actually the most successful trade of my career. I actually sold 30-year treasury bonds at 7%, which was thought to be really, really low. And that was in April of, uh, of uh, 1986. And I actually sold at the top tick. And the market just started uh, tanking after that. And then it started to rally back. And the big mistake I made was I ended up being long the market um, right before it started to drop again. And I, I remember feeling that I was trapped in this trade. I remember thinking that I just kind of knew that the market was going to drop, gap down like every day because it was doing that day after day after day. And I was just trapped in, in this position and I was losing tons of money. And I just remember, actually, I was, I was in a rock band at the time. So it was actually my first career was in rock and roll. And I wrote a song that was called Wishing, Hoping, and Praying, because that was exactly what I realized I was doing in that trade. I was just wishing, hoping, and praying that the market would reverse the upside, even though in my bones, I kind of knew that wasn't going to happen. And I started to realize that you're, the, the phrase that uh, a guy actually told me when I uh, explained my situation to him, he said, your first loss is your best loss. And that's really good advice in investing markets. You know, you're in the wrong trade. You, maybe your premise was wrong. Maybe new information came out that caused a reversal. Uh, you just got to get out, even though you're taking a loss. And so you, the key thing that you learn from something like that is you just have to act. You can't just be frozen in a position and you have to acknowledge that your first loss is your best loss and to get out. And that, that, was, a, that was a big deal. Um, the, the second biggest mistake I made was actually something I did not do rather than something that I did do. And that was in 2003, uh, in the, or 2002 rather, in the aftermath of Enron and the scandals in the corporate bond market, there was an incredibly high degree of flight to quality and the junk bond market was trashed. And in all all the accounts that I was that would traditionally run uh, corporate bonds, I went to my maximum junk bond position. But for some unknown reason, thinking that I, in my core strategy where I never took corporate credit risk, for some reason I didn't want to get my hands dirty or something with the corporate bonds, and I didn't buy any, even though I went to my, my maximum in the more diversified accounts where corporate bonds were a, a, a typical, if not consistent, investment. And I just and because of that, I missed the entire massive rally uh, from October of 2002 till October of 2003. The return on Treasury bonds was like zero, but the return on junk bonds was 30 percent. Oh, and I missed the entire thing because in the one strategy. And so I told myself, I'm never going to be so foolish and narrow minded again. The next time there's a big washout in credit. I'm going to go into junkie bonds, even in this low-risk uh, flagship strategy. What ended up happening, though, was that the, tr the uh, crash in credit was epicentered in mortgage-backed securities. And so I ended up going massively long junkie stuff in 2009, early in the year. But it wasn't in, in corporate bonds. It was in 
the things that were actually the cheapest, which were mortgages. So it's kind of ironic. I, I still have never done in that traditional flagship strategy, which I've been running now for over 35 years, I've never owned a corporate bond, even till this day. When the corporate bond market crashes, which it would have without the Fed, I mean, yeah. the corporate bond market was crashing in March into April. I was ready to pull the trigger, but the Fed, uh, you know, uh, pulled pulled the rug out from under the opportunity with their illegal uh, bond buying activity in the corporate bond market, which, as you know, is in direct violation of the Federal Reserve Act of, of uh, 1913. They're not allowed to do it, but you know, this is just a different situation. So almost anything is possible as we've learned over the past 12 to 15 years out of the central banking community. How did you navigate the really difficult bond market of 94? I mean, that was a brutal period for bonds, right? It was, uh, it was a big interest rate rise in a compressed time frame, And the biggest problem of 1994 was that it came after a big interest rate decline that brought short-term rates down about 3%, which was thought to be absurdly low at the time. And because of the low interest rates, the mortgage market, which was the bulk of my investment activity, was refinancing in a very uh, rapid fashion. In fact, uh, it, it was it set records uh, at the time. Those records were broken in 2003, but it was really high refinancing. And that created a short-term maturity concept in the mortgage-backed securities market. If half the mortgages refinance in one year, it's a short, the securities that are backed by those mortgages are definitionally very short-term assets with low durations. And the yield curve was very steep in those days. The uh, short rates were 3%, long rates were more at like, you know, 6 or 7% or something like that. And so when the rates started to go up, the refinancing went away because obviously the opportunity to refinance wasn't as attractive. And suddenly the mortgage-backed securities market went from uh, an interest rate maturity of about two years to one of about 10 years. So not only did you have to endure a 300 basis point interest rate rise or about a nine-month time period, but you also had the unfortunate experience in the, in the Ginny Mae type of market of extending and rolling up the yield curve. So the losses were pretty extreme. And then you had uh, margin call problems. You had Orange County that didn't own mortgage-backed securities. There's an urban legend that that's what they ran into trouble with, but it's not true. It was just Fannie Mae debentures. But they ended up rolling up the yield curve on them too. And they ended up liquidating those assets, unfortunately, causing the low of the bond market of 1994. I had the worst year ever in my most aggressive strategy in 1994. I was down 23%. Wow. In 1994, in my more traditional strategies, I was down a small amount. But in my most aggressive strategy, I was down 23%. But amazingly, in the first half of 1995, the market reversed pretty strongly. And by the middle of 1995, by June 30th of 1995, the entire 23% loss had been erased. And I was actually up 53% in wow. the first half of wow. 1995. Because I just, because the, the market was was trashed on supply demand problems. We were, we were talking about government guaranteed mortgages. Some of them were trading at, at, at prices that uh, anybody that didn't experience 1994, anybody that's only been in the market for 20 years, they probably wouldn't believe how cheap these securities were. I mean, the, the treasury bond market was yielding something like you know 7% or something. And there were securities that yielded to the worst possible case, 16% that you could buy in the mortgage-backed securities market. But they were, there was just an overwhelming problem 
of selling. And that prepared me tremendously for the 2007, 2008 period, because it made me realize how much prices can drop when you have a supply demand imbalance of that magnitude. Valuation makes absolutely zero difference when you're in a true brutal bear market. You just go to prices that you just can't believe. And so when the market started to crack in 2007, one of my guys, he's from, uh, he's from Latvia, and I, I used to call him a crazy Russian billionaire. He wasn't Russian, really. He was Latvian. He certainly wasn't a billionaire, but he was certainly a little bit crazy. He still works for me. He's now actually the head of my agency, uh, Mortgage-backed Securities Division. But the prices of a lot of these uh, adjustable rate mortgages had never gone below 100. They were perceived to be credit risk-free, AAA rated. Uh, they were floating rates, so they had no interest rate risk to speak of. And they had never traded below 100. I'm talking about the AAA rated prime mortgage-backed securities. I'm not talking about subprime garbage. I'm talking about really good underwriting. They had never traded below 100. And then there was the margin calls started to come in the late summer of 2007. And one of the greatest originators was Thornburg, a mortgage REIT. They were a really good originator. And they got caught in a liquidity problem. And they got margin called one Friday afternoon. And there were hundreds of millions of dollars, these prime mortgages that were being margin called away. And uh, I decided, well, you know, they were trade below 100 before. They were being talked at 97 cents on the dollar, which was the lowest price anybody had ever seen. And I put a throwaway bid of 93 on a $300 million package of these mortgage-backed securities, and I got hit. And my crazy Russian billionaire guy, he, go, he says, this is way too cheap, way too cheap. This is the cheapest bond I have ever seen. And him saying that triggered this crack of doom feeling all the way down my spine that reminded me of 1994 in the Ginny May market when the prices got so absurdly low. And I said, you're going to write that on the ticket, Vitaly. Write it on the ticket. This is the cheapest thing I have ever seen because mark my words, the prices are going to go way, way, way lower. And I said, we're putting a moratorium. We're not buying anymore until the yields. And the yield at the time was like 8%. So the bond, it was like at 93 cents on the dollar and with a six and a half coupon or whatever, it was an 8% yield. I said, mark my words, these securities are going to go to yields in the teens. But I was wrong. They went to yields of 40% to wow. no losses, actually. Um, wow. but, but it was that experience from 1994 of how low the, the Ginnie Mae prices got that made me realize when things really go bad, they go way worse than anybody thinks. And you get to this level where they're just completely fire sailed. And we managed to navigate the global financial crisis probably better than anybody else in the fixed income business because of the institutional memory and experience. So one of the things that makes a good investor is actually, you talked about mistakes, you learn from mistakes. Absolutely having a memory, an emotional memory uh, and an institutional memory th that you don't forget your mistakes is really valuable. My uncle um, invented the Xerox uh, copy machine, and he was one of the greatest inventors of the 20th century. He's in the Hall of Fame. There's such a, such a thing as the Inventor's Hall of Fame. And he was interviewed, and he said, uh, a successful inventor is an accident-prone scientist that pays attention. And that's kind of the same thing in the investment business. You make mistakes. You're going to make them. There's probably 2,000 mistakes you can make. I've probably made all 2,000 of them twice. But thankfully, I rarely make one a third time. So you have to, you have, to have that memory. And a lot of it is actually kind of 
emotional memory, what the market feels like. Like this year, I was very bearish on the stock market in February, and I have a fund that I run. It's mostly my own money, and I was very short. I was actually 300% short uh, the U.S. stock market, and I covered those shorts on March 23rd. I didn't go long. I wish I had, but I covered the shorts. It was because the market felt total panic. It was that day when um, um, Bill Ackman uh, went on TV and was talking extremely negatively, even though apparently he was buying stocks at the time, but he was, he was talking very doom and gloomy, and it became a, a big topic for that, that morning. And I realized that that was kind of the environment where you really have the washout. So again, it's that kind of emotional uh, memory that has served me very, very well and, and not, uh, you know, just accepting your mistakes and learning from them. So what's your, I mean, there's, I'm going to talk about your personal investing style and then as a business, obviously, because you run a lot of managers and stuff, but your personal investing style, what is that like now? How do you, do you charts? Are you very mathematical prices based? Are you a feelings guy? How do you construct from an idea through to the execution? Because that's fascinating. People don't get to hear about how you do that. Well, I'm a big believer in uh, cycles and and charts and retracements and support and resistance and all that type of stuff. And I spend a lot of time analyzing offsides positioning. Um, so sentiment, you know, call buying, uh, which is absurdly high, has been for, for months now, thanks to retail and these slices and all these other uh, retail products. So uh, I, I, I look a lot at sentiment and, and where things are. Um, for example, I'm very, very negative uh, long term on the U.S. dollar. I've been a dollar bear structurally since January of 2017, where I had been positive on the dollar for about six, seven years and then I turned negative in January of, 20, uh, of 2017. But I'm actually long the dollar now, uh, even though I don't believe in it at all as a good investment for the next five years. But the positioning against the dollar got pretty extreme Crazy, about, yeah. about a month ago. And the level, there was a double bottom, you know, back on the Dixie index at about 92, down from 103 in January of 2017. And it just seemed to me that there was no momentum on the downside. There was just a lot of negative positioning. And so we, for a trade, we went long the dollar. We haven't made a lot of money on it, but it's, but it's, we, we're in, we're in the, we're in the black. So, I mean, so you don't mind, you don't mind trading against your macro view from time to time when you see a specific right. opportunity coming. That's right. Um, I, I will not go mega long the dollar thanks to my macro view, but I, I am positioned moderately long the dollar. So my macro view on the dollar, I, it's actually, that, that is my highest conviction macro idea is that the dollar is going down. Uh, and I, I know I'm not alone in that view, although I, I, I've been of that mind for a while. Um, it has a lot to do with this absurd deficit problem that we have uh, gone into on steroids uh, here in 2020, the correlation between the dollar going down and the, uh, the twin deficit going up is extraordinarily tight. And the deficit is obviously exploding. Forget about the trade deficit, it doesn't matter. It's trivial compared to the budget deficit. And the budget deficit is, is going to just get worse and worse and worse. And so the dollar seems almost assuredly to be going lower, in fact, I mean, another thing that causes the dollar to go low is, you know, the, the Fed has uh, really pivoted a lot over the past couple of years. 
And so you don't have anything resembling a strong dollar policy thanks to interest rates. And uh, so I, 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 think, I think the Fed has been quite clear that they want inflation to run uh, significantly higher than 2%, at least for a while. And uh, they have no problem with that concept. In fact, they embrace it. And that's another reason to be, to be bearish on the dollar. So uh, it hasn't been a money-making trade in any significant way, but I think that's the big trade for the, the years ahead. Do you mainly now run the whole portfolio as a, a pure macro view? Because obviously, originally, you were mortgage-backed securities. You were much more in the weeds. You knew inside now mm -hmm. every part. You now seem more macro in your view. You're multi-asset now. Is that right? Yeah, I've, I've really changed um, my role in investing very substantially over the past 15 years, most of it in the last 10 years. When we started Double Line uh, 11 years ago, um, I was doing a lot of trading, a lot of micro stuff, a lot of security selection, a lot of arguing about a quarter point on a trade and all that stuff. But uh, as the firm grew very rapidly, uh, my time was not well spent doing those things because I've had a team working for me that I've trained for many, many years. I mean, many of my uh, people that work for me have worked for me for 20 years. And they will come to the same conclusion on the micro stuff because I trained them and we've worked together very closely for a long time. So let them argue about the quarter of a point and let them decide whether you want Ginny Mae X or Ginny Mae Y or corporate bond you know, A or corporate bond B. What I am trying to do is really get us in the, the you know, in, in the tailwinds of, of the macro stuff. And I've gotten uh, a big team built around that. We have a very uh, extensive meeting. We just had it this morning. It lasts a couple hours uh, going through 250 pages of, of charts. It's very disciplined, but we evolve it, of course, as the, as this, um, as the world changes. But we go through and we basically rank uh, every, every asset class in the world um, with a fair amount of granularity, actually. And we decide that this is our positioning for Really, we're thinking about an 18-month sort of a time window. Although we will, as as the as the big centerpiece of what we're doing, but then you know we'll we'll adjust it for, for a multi-week sort of counter trade or whatever. Not in a major way, but just try to, to add a little bit more value. And I have a, 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 I spend a great deal of time on trying to understand you know the macro stuff and how it's changing. And uh, I've. I've, I enjoy it, and I've, I've uh, developed a, a style that I think I've, has been quite value-added. So I enjoy it, and I'm good at it. So, uh, and everybody uh, fall, kind of falls in behind because it, it's funny. when uh, A lot of people, they, they kind of – it takes them a while working uh, on the team to understand that uh, you, we're pretty much get the macro stuff right about 70% of the time which is a very high uh, batting average. I mean, if you, if you can get it right 53% of the time, you're going to be successful. But most people get it right about 48% of the time, and that's the problem. Uh, but for some reason, uh, I seem to have a good vision on that stuff and get it right about 70% of the time, which means I'm wrong 30% of the time, which is, you know, when you've been in the business 35 years plus, 30% of the time, I've been wrong for a decade, right? <laughs> <laughs> so if anybody if anybody wants to hate on me, that's fine. They, I hope you've got a long, long time period if you want a list of things that I've gotten wrong. So uh, 
Jeffrey, but, the other interesting thing about that is I have a feeling that one of the reasons why the 70% number, which is high, as you say, is because your time horizon is different to most participants, right? So most hedge funds are monthly mark to market. But you're trading with longer term views. You can accept different types of drawdowns in individual positions. You can construct your portfolio differently. So totally it's time correct. arbitrage because macro, as you know, I mean, we get one bloody piece of economic data a month. I mean, nothing changes for six months. Yeah. So, you know, it does take time to play out. Do you think that's one of the secrets? You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Absolutely. Um, in fact, one of the very first things that I did in the investment business, I was working when I started in the bond department, I, uh, th there was a guy who needed some quant support. And he gave me a, a task of just doing a historical study on uh, what time horizon of investment would be most optimal. And we started out with a study that we assumed that you had perfect foresight with a five-year horizon. So we just used historical data on every asset class and said, let's just say that uh, uh, on day one, you have perfect foresight and you invest in the asset class that ends up being the number one returner for the next five years. And you, you can do that because you're just using historical data. So you're just analyzing uh, return series. And what we concluded is that even if you had perfect foresight with a five-year horizon, you would probably go out of business because so many of the actual data series were displayed the characteristic that even though you knew with metaphysical certitude that you were in the right sector for the full five years, so often you were it was bad for the first two. And the return was very often backloaded in those five-year periods. And we came to the conclusion that your clients would fire you if you were that bad for two years and refused just to Just when think. your PL was about to take off, you've got fired. Right, right. It's just like that value investor. Uh, was, it, was it Julian Robertson that closed down in, in 2000, a, a value manager right before value really did well? So we came to the conclusion that five years is too long. It might be fine for your personal money because you don't have anybody badgering you about it. But when you have clients that want quarterly and monthly reporting, they're going to complain, as they always do, even if you have, have a bad quarter, let alone two years in a row. And so I came to the conclusion that uh, five years was too long, but I also perceived that what, uh, what most people uh, say they do, which they're lying, actually, they, they say that they're, uh, they're thinking about, uh, they're analyzing markets continuously all the time, which of course is a lie. They're, when they're asleep, they're not doing it. When they're eating lunch, they're not doing it. But most people, they do have like a weekly meeting and some people make changes pretty frequently. You talk about hedge funds have a short horizon. I, I just think that the longer your horizon is, the higher the probability of your success. Okay. I think, I mean, if, if I wanted to invest for my great, great, great grandchildren, I'm positive that certain real estate investments and certain resource investments would be obvious winners. But, you know, who cares about your great, great, great grandchildren? So you, you have to balance the higher probability of a long horizon you know, with with the uh, with, with with the tolerance of your investors, your impatience of your investors, and I came to the conclusion that eighteen months was the best horizon. It's long enough 
that you, you bring your probability, in my case, up to about 70%, but it's short enough that you don't have the five-year problem. And I've succeeded in this business by having about an 18-month horizon. And sometimes it ends up being two years, and sometimes it ends up happening in a year. But uh, I found that to be the real, the real sweet spot, and it served me very well. Yeah, I mean, I, I, mean, I was running a macro hedge fund uh, for GLG back in London back in the day, and I, I eventually left the business for the reason that I just thought the time horizons were mismatched. Yeah. And, you know, and since then, you know, I've, I've written a research service, Global Macro Investor, of which I've gone at exactly the same time horizon and I haven't quite hit 70%, but not far off from yeah. exactly the same structure as nobody's doing it. The time arbitrage is good. If I went to short, shorter term trading, I'm just not that good. <laughs> I'm sure my results would be uh, substantially worse. I think my hit ratio would go down to 55% if I was really trying to do month by month. Uh, and a lot of people burn out in hedge funds. That's a very common thing because they're so short-term oriented. I mean, I've talked to many hedge fund managers who say that they, they wake up several times in the night and have to grab for their phone because they're panicking about, you know, uh, the opening in Singapore or something. And, you know, that's no way to live. So I, I'm not surprised that people that use that very short-term horizon don't have staying power. How do you think about before we go on to your views going forwards, because now we've framed your time horizon and stuff like that, which is always really important because if you don't listen to somebody's time horizon, you don't understand what they're saying. And so many, so few people do. Talk to me a little bit about risk management. So how do you think about sizing a trade? Because, you know, you talked about the 300% trades that you've had, you know, those, sometimes you get these opportunities, but they're rare. How rare. do you think about trade sizing overall? Typically, it kind of depends on the asset class. Like if I'm running a corporate bond portfolio, if it's risky stuff, I really don't want things to be more than about a percent under normal conditions, any, any particular name or something like that. In the mortgage market, when I used to invest in some really risky uh, refinancing-oriented securities, which can have huge price changes, I wouldn't have a single position that was more than one half of 1% because there's a lot of idiosyncratic things that can happen. But I'm completely comfortable when you get to those rare moments where uh, I'm pretty comfortable going sort of all in. But you have to be in those rare moments. I mean, it only happens probably once every dozen years or so. And it takes all the patience in the world to wait, wait, and wait for the prices to just drop, drop, drop. But once you get to that level where you can almost analytically prove that you're going to get more money back, we're talking about bonds here particularly, that you're, you might not get all your money back if it's a corporate bond situation or a default-oriented commercial mortgage-backed security, but you get to points where it's virtually impossible to not get more money back than where the market is actually willing to sell you these securities. And at that point, I'm pretty willing to go all in. Now, what I, would, what I mean all in I'll actually raise funds to do one trade. I did that in 1994. I did that in 2008, 2009. And I, I, I'm preparing to do it again. Uh, but the, the market opportunity isn't there yet. Uh, it's not, you know, the Fed has really, uh, it, it, it was, was coming, but the Fed screwed it up uh, with their bond, uh, their, their bond support purchases. But I would start a fund to do basically one, and it's almost a beta trade. So I have two different styles. There's, there's the normal course of business where everything's an alpha trade. And that's where we are right now, clearly. I mean, the opportunities, particularly in the fixed income market, are pretty paltry. 
And so everything's an alpha trade. There's no beta that's worth anything right now. Um, so you have to find parts of the capital structure that are particularly cliffy and all that sort of stuff. And so uh, right now everything's an alpha trade, but you do alpha trades waiting for the big beta trade. And when the beta trade comes, I'm not, I don't want risk management. Risk management is when you're in the alpha trades. You need risk management right now. When the market falls apart, you don't want risk management. You actually want to just put the pedal to the metal. Yeah, you want to take as much risk as you can when you've got to. Yeah, because it only happens, I mean, I, it only happens, what, five times in, in, a, in a lifetime? Yeah, entire career. You only get a few of those. Right. And so you, you have to really you have to really push it. Like I said earlier, my biggest mistake was I didn't push it the way I should have across the board in the corporate bond market in 2002. And I sort of vowed I would never do I would never miss that again. So um, you, but you have to play defense waiting for those things to come. And that means a lot of diversification, small position sizings, particularly, uh, you know, when you're, you're in a market that is uh I would say processed uh, is priced for for good for good outcomes, uh, assuming that nothing bad will ever happen again. And we were there in, in February of this year. Yeah, we were there. But uh, and I, th- I think we're going to get there again. But uh, we'll uh, you know, the, the, this this whole situation that we're in right now is wickedly unstable, in my view. Yeah, um, let's talk about this a little bit. I mean, look, I'm, I'm a you know, I have 30 years in this and. I'm a bond market guy because that's been the greatest source of return, risk-adjusted returns of almost anything. And here we are with a bond market that's got like zero vol. And the credit almost market zero, right zero vol as well because the Fed have stopped the credit market. So, yes, I can see the kind of more credity-related equities are selling off or moving around a bit. It's a bloody hard market for macro right now. The dollar's not done anything much, as you say. Yep. yep. So we're kind of stuck. What, what are you thinking? Well, uh, we were just having this discussion this week in one of my strategy meetings where some of the uh, people were lamenting the, the the state of affairs. And I said, you just have to take reality for what it is. I mean, if, if you were only a treasury market investor, the, right now, the situation is truly hopeless. Hopeless. I mean, the yield is 50 basis points and the vol, as you correctly stated, is zero. So you have virtually zero income and there's no volatility to trade that you could actually, you know, make something happen through price change. It's literally hopeless. And so you just in in environments like this, you actually just have to not try very hard and just accept the fact that uh, you're not going to be posting big numbers because any attempt to post a big number is probably a very long shot in terms of, of potential success. Yeah, just, I mean, you, you can wait for the breakout in the end because if you push to. a position in a market like this, as you say, you can lose money. So then you trade options and you just bleed time decay. It's just not yep. that kind of market. Yeah, it's, it's, I, I'm, I have been way less active in the past, I would say, three months than pretty much any time in my career. I was quite active, of course, in March and April. Where you were just you were just trying to stay alive, but uh, in the last few months there's just nothing going on. But you always you know low volatility leads to high volatility. There's a reason why Death Valley is right next to Mount Whitney. Death Valley is the lowest spot in the in the 48 the lower 48 states, and Mount Whitney's the, the highest spot. There's a reason why they're right next to each other. 
that dirt's got to go somewhere. And, <laughs> and that's what happens. Vol never stays low. Uh, and so you, you simply have to uh, pay attention and wait for the opportunities because the vol will go up. I mean, interest yep. rates, interest rates will not stay at 67 basis points on the 10-year forever. No, and, not, my view is always that um, suppressed volatility leads to hypervolatility. Absolutely. And- it's, it's actually Gunlock's law of investment physics. I say the frequency of trouble times the magnitude of, of trouble equals a constant. So if you, yes, you know, the, worst, right. the worst thing you can try to do is invest in one of these hedge funds that claims they've got everything, all the risks are ironed out flat, and they find a way to make 75 basis points every single month. And it's 75 basis points every single month. And they, I've seen a few of these come and go, and they can do it for a couple, three years. And then comes the bankruptcy filing. <laughs> because when, when, when the vol comes, they lose 100%. So an attempt to make an, an, inco- uh, an earnings stream, a return stream, that's absolutely constant at some level above the risk-free rate is doomed to a bankruptcy failure. Because uh, usually those types of strategies also employ many turns of leverage, and that's ultimately their downfall. Remember long-term capital management, which should have been called short-term well. capital management because they weren't even in business for five years. You know, that's a that was a a, a bad construct right there. But yeah, I mean, I, I remember attempts never work. I was in uh, running a, you know, a reasonably large hedge fund in London back in the in the early two thousands, and our competitor was this other fund that was well known, and it was doing. One and a half percent a month, one and a half, two percent a month, consistently, and like, but consistently, and our PL was moving around, and we were reasonably well performing, and it was moving around. I'm like, how is this possible? What are they doing? What are they doing? So it's two percent, two percent, two percent, and all the investors are going, well, you guys are idiots. These guys know what they're doing. It's just you guys are fools. Two percent, two percent, two percent down forty seven. Right, right. Well, that's sure. that's the way it works. Selling options. One of the most one of the funniest things is a lot of uh, large uh, investment pools employ consulting firms to help them analyze risk-adjusted returns and the like. And unfortunately, they don't really quite understand how things work. And they use they use a lot of you know CFA manual types of, of techniques. And I saw one of the most entertaining speeches ever. Uh, I was speaking at a at a client seminar conference, and there was this fellow that got up there. He was really entertaining. And he, he went through some risk-adjusted return analysis, and he got everybody all hyped up and convinced that there was this – he was just using actual return streams as an example. And he got everybody to agree that the, there's one investment they would absolutely positively do. And then he revealed that it was the historical record of Bernie Madoff. <laughs> <laughs> So you got to be careful on these things that look like they somehow have solved the entire problem of eliminating volatility while keeping returns high, because I I, I just wouldn't even want to go there. I wouldn't I wouldn't give a dime to somebody that has one of these two uh, percent a month sort of attempts, because I, I you're going to lose all your money within five years. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. 
So looking forward to what, I mean, acknowledging that the markets are pretty frustrating right now, what do you think the, the good opportunities are over the 18-month time horizon? You've talked about the dollar a bit. I yeah, I, I think 18 that. months is enough for the dollar to fall. Yeah. Um, and and that, that means, I mean, probably the most frustrating um, allocation that many investors in pools have made that has not paid off is recognition that the returns of the United States stock market, let's just say the S&P 500, have just been so incredibly dominant versus the rest of the world. And that those returns are really, for the last couple of years, only in the S&P 6. The S&P 494 have no return at all over that time period. And so I've got this kind of strange advice for people. I say, if you wanna own US stocks, you should own those six, knowing that you're going to take a bloodbath if you st- if you overstay your welcome. But it is a 100% momentum-based market, the most dangerous type of market in the world. I mean, I turned negative on the Nasdaq uh, September 30th of 1999. I was really negative. Of course, in the fourth quarter of 1999, it went up 80%. But one year later, it was down 50% from the September 30th level. And I feel like we're in that type of an environment. So if you're going to own U.S. stocks, which I don't recommend, but if you want to own them, I think the only way to go is those six. And you just got to have your finger on that, the the exit button pretty, pretty close by. But I think that's your only chance of making money. And and yet I don't want anything to do with it. Because you, I feel like this is the NASDAQ. Do you buy into the theory that people are thinking of these tech companies like the new zero coupon bonds, you know, that these are, have infinite cash flow and with, ne- with zero interest rates, these just go to the moon, there's no valuation? I mean, I can tell by the smoke on your face you don't believe they've that. Already gone, they've already gone to the moon. I mean, uh, it's, it's, it's so strange how faddish the market has become. The one, the one that, that just kind of blows my mind is actually not a tech company. It's it's actually a restaurant company. It's Chipotle. And I, I just can't understand why the stock has tripled over the last six months. I, I just it just baffles me. And yet people say, well, they're 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 thriving on their 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 delivery. Okay, but the isn't the PE like 150 or something? I mean that's a lot of tacos. So but yet but yet the stock is invincible. I was actually short that stock in in February, and as good luck would have it, I covered it on the low because it's tripled since then. <laughs> so I would have gotten hammered. But you know, I just I just think we're in the late. My thinking is we're in the late stage, very late stage of this momentum market. It it can always continue longer than you think possible, but I do think that within 18 months it's going to crack pretty hard, and so I I, I think that you want to be avoiding it for the time being. And I think when the next big meltdown happens, I think the US is gonna be the worst performing market actually. And they'll have a lot to do with the dollar weakening. And so I know a lot of people have diversified out of the US on valuation reasons and on just relative performance differentials, which are really kind of mind blowing how well the US has done versus, you know, I mean, Japan hasn't done anything for forever. Europe's not doing anything. Uh, but, you know, I, I do think that you're going to be uh, not well served in dollar based investments, which would include the U.S. And this would be, uh, you know, you don't have to do it today necessarily because it really needs uh, a, a rollover to start getting going. 
but I do think that uh, diversifying away makes a lot of sense. So there's a there's something that was very popular, um, and it, it gained a lot of money, a lot of AUM. It was called the permanent portfolio, and it was a very simple concept. I think it had four things equal weighted. I think it was st- stocks, uh, you know, high quality bonds, cash, and gold. And I think they were one fourth each, and it got very uh, successful because there was a window there in the aftermath of the global financial crisis that did really well, that mix of assets. And then it fell on hard times when stocks really got going and the AUM in that particular permanent portfolio mutual fund collapsed. But I think that's a good investment right now. I think, that you, I think we have such a, a, a potential tail risk of, of outcomes, such a disperse uh, potential outcomes that you really need to have uh, this kind of barbelled uh, asset allocation concept. So I, I actually think owning 25% gold isn't crazy right now, nor do I think owning 25% cash isn't crazy. They're kind of the opposites. Nor do I, and I also don't think 25% stocks is crazy because one thing about a, a potential inflationary environment is stocks can add a zero to their prices. You might not gain in real purchasing power, but you can keep keep going with a nominal value that has some sort of inflation protection. And you know the high quality bonds. Uh, uh, maybe you're supposed to just have two two doses of cash instead of that, because yeah, the well, high quality bonds, the yeah, yield well, is not much different than zero. You know there is a possibility. I, I'm more of a deflationary kind of guy, and even in your dollar scenario, right? It sounds like. The dollar goes up, blah, blah, blah. That's deflationary for a period of time. So the bond part of the portfolio works. Maybe rates go negative in the US. Maybe they go to zero, properly zero, 30 years. And then after that, we get inflation. But that whole portfolio kind of makes sense. you know. Yeah, I agree with you on that. I agree with – I am ultimately an inflation-fearing uh, fear, person. But in the short term, I do not think there's any inflation. And I, I, I think what's happened this year is pretty clearly deflationary. And uh, particularly, I, I think wage, uh, white collar wage deflation is going to be pretty intense. I mean, one thing about work from home is it gives you a different prism through which to analyze your business and the way businesses operate. And I'm pretty sure just about every business owner and CEO has been made aware of ways of working more efficiently uh, remotely, or maybe they can cost cut by moving some operations to other places. Like my IT department has said to me, there's really no reason for us ever to go back in the office. There's no reason for, because they, they just they just live on the, the 16th floor of our, on our building, it off in a corner, you never see them. They're just behind a closed door typing away. Uh, they can so easily do that at home. Why do we need to, why do we need that office space? That's clearly deflationary. What about, what about the traveling salesman? that can't travel right now. I mean, I think most businesses are probably thinking, do I really need this many traveling salesmen? No. So there's going to be a lot of deflation in the wages of traveling salesmen. And a lot of other middle managers, I think, are going to learn that people have figured out that all they're doing is watching people work that report to them and not really doing any work. And maybe you don't need so much middle management. I think all of this is deflationary. What if somebody moves... They, they're tired of all the needles on the sidewalk in San Francisco, and they decide they want to go to Boise. Well, you don't have to pay them as much, right? I mean, the cost of living is lower. That's deflationary. And if, and if, and if somebody who uh, 
was felt at risk of losing their job in March and April. They're probably still at fearful of an event of, of job insecurity. I, I think that they're going to take a pay cut rather than, than a pink slip. So I, I do think that there's a lot of deflationary things. And until, uh, you know, weirdly, as Lacey Hunt uh, uh, points out so academically correctly, one weird thing about the deficit is it really isn't inflationary. It's not inflationary until you start actually declaring the liabilities of the Federal Reserve to be legal tender and actually giving money to people, which we're starting to do. That's why I'm ultimately an inflationist. I give, I, when I used to give speeches, when there used to be gatherings of people, I used to routinely say, I know how to get inflation by five o'clock this afternoon, literally. We have an announcement from the Treasury Department that every bank account in America is going to have a $1 billion deposit at 4.59 this afternoon. That will cause inflation. Because if we don't have inflation, the lines at the Ferrari dealers would be something to behold if you gave everybody a billion dollars at 4.59 this afternoon. So you can do it. You, there just has to be the, the true desire, the, the, the true commitment to doing it. And obviously, we've been ramping up this procedure ever since the global financial crisis of giving money to people. Actually, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of comical how people talk about uh, um, modern monetary theory or universal basic income as some wacky idea. We've been doing it since the 60s. I mean, not to the whole population, but what do you think welfare is? It's universal basic income, but yeah. it's not universal. It's just for a certain subset of the population. And it hasn't exactly solved the problems. In fact, in my view, it's made them much worse. But, uh, you know, so uh, you can get inflation, but you have, to, you have to really, really want it. And I think it takes more pain of yeah, so disinflation. I want, to, I want to talk about the pain. One of my thesis is we've got a massive insolvency about to happen because we've got a, the market's not pricing this yet properly, no. but it right. feels that look if you if you've taken so let's say where, where's GDP year on year right now probably down five percent year on year right so this is still the biggest recession of nine. our life. It's negative nine in the United States year, year over year June 30 yeah. to June 30 2020. Okay, so yeah, so look, this is still the biggest recession since the 1930s, and we're just coming off the bottom of the of the massive quarter. But even if I look at the real time economic data, maybe it's down seven or six or whatever the number is, right? It's still huge. Yeah. And there's no cash flow, as you pointed out. All these deflationary things, every restaurant, small business is closed, everything. Well, and I don't think people fully understand the how many business closures there's going to be in the next few months. Because I, I don't travel out of my property here very often because we're working from home and I'm not going to go to a grocery store or something. I've got people for that. And so, you know, I, I venture out every now and then and I had to go to the bank. And I was shocked at the empty storefronts, how many empty storefronts there have started to uh, develop in the last, say, six weeks. I mean, businesses that have been in place forever, they're now just for lease. And there's going to be a lot more of that. And I, I think it's going to really accelerate. Uh, I, I, we're, we were talking this morning. What about the movie theater industry? I mean, what's going to happen there? How long can they hang on? And uh, I, I don't. Th I, I think there's going to be real problems in the winter time here. And even more concerningly, look, it, it's concerning for the individuals, all of these small businesses. That's the, the the bulk of American capitalism is these small businesses. But when you look at this massive group of triple B rated 
um, companies, right? It's On the edge of a cliff, and the Fed stopped it. They stopped what had to be the market clearing event, which is all this triple B was going to go to junk. Well, the triple B, the triple B bond market in two thousand and six or seven or so was the same size as the junk bond market. Today, it's three hundred percent the size of the junk bond market. So, if one third of the triple Bs get downgraded, the junk bond market will double in size. Or halve in price, <laughs> something like that. Yeah, I mean that's obviously so, so, some combination of the two, but that's almost certain to happen. I think. But and the you're Fed right. Stopping Fed it stopped, it, Fed stopped it by by uh, providing liquidity, but as so many people have correctly pointed out, there's a big difference between short-term liquidity and long-term solvency. Yeah, but and the issue can't, is they can't stop the insolvency. But they are buying corporate bonds, right? So they're buying bloody Microsoft bonds and G bonds and everything else in this kind of in this in this BlackRock fund. I'm like, yeah. this is, they, they haven't bought very many. Uh, they didn't really need to. It was just doing any of it that made people decide that the prices were supported and that they had something of a put to the Fed. Uh, and uh, it hadn't ever occurred in the junk bond market before, and it's not supposed to happen. But they're they're that close to just buying equities. I mean, they're one they're one slice of the of the capital stack away from doing the Bank of Japan and just buying the equities. Um, I don't know if they're going to do it or not. But you know, at this point, uh, unfortunately, because they're in violation of the Federal Reserve Act of of 1913 right now, almost anything can happen. Because why stop there? You, there's, there, you've, you've taken the guardrails off of, of the uh, the operations that are, um, are are deemed legitimate. So we'll we'll see what happens. But the 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 the, the downgrades have already started to happen. Um, if the, it's really interesting to look at charts about um, lending standards, you know, surveys of of bank loan officers and the yeah. like, and just how they're much tighter things are. Crazy. The, the, the junk bond market should probably be right now at a 15% default rate year to date, uh, but it's not. Uh, and uh, the downgrades almost certainly have to come. And uh, cl clearly, uh, there's just a lot of overinvestment in the corporate bond market. Thanks to the way it behaved this year, I think there are quite a few investors, unsophisticated investors, that believe that corporate bonds have no risk. So one yeah. of the things I've been looking at is, uh, you know, I, I looked at this too, and I'm like, it's so frustrating because, as you said, there should have been a good opportunity here. You could sort out the wheat from the chaff. So what I did is I constructed a basket of triple B rated equity. So I just took the largest um, um, component of each part of the triple B market by sector, did an equity portfolio. That's interesting because the equities are moving. I'm kind of thinking, I'm, I'm looking at the European bank stocks as well, right? And I've been following those for a long time. And I think the equity goes to zero, but the bond doesn't because they get nationalized. And yeah, I, and that's possible. I mean, certainly one thing that we've learned is that negative interest rates are fatal to, the, to banking systems. I mean, that seems pretty crystal clear. Uh, the, Japan went negative a long time ago, and their banking uh, sector uh, in, on the, the Tokyo Stock Exchange is down 85% from where it was in 2006, you know, or even 1990-something. And, and the Europeans, once they went negative, it was it was hopeless. The UK's so, just got negative, and you know, two-year yeah. gilts are negative, and the UK banks are at all-time record lows. They've gone below 1986 prices. I know it's because they can't possibly survive a negative interest rate. So, you, you mentioned that maybe the U.S. rates go negative. I certainly hope not. 
Jay Powell says he doesn't like the idea of negative interest rates. I applaud him for that. But uh, because I think if the U.S. wants negative interest rates, I think the global financial system would collapse. But, you know, don't forget. I mean, I, I went back and looked at it and Schatz went negative 18 months before the ECB finally gave up. Yeah. Gilts have been negative. Um, two year gilts have been negative and short sterling was negative six months before the ECB gave up, uh, the, the Bank of England gave up. So I kind of think I don't know whether the Fed gets the choice. Powell can say whatever he wants. The, the, the bond market is always, I think, the truth, and it will yeah. decide whether it's going negative or not. And I don't know. As you say, what the hell does it do to the system? Who knows? Well, it's one thing for Japan to be negative and Europe to be negative, but the U.S. is a massive capital market. And at least capital can go to the United States and survive capital destruction of negative interest rates. You don't get much of a reward, but you're not getting destruction. If you start to have destruction in a capital market, the largest in the world by far, I just don't think the system globally can survive. No, but I think you and I will agree that, okay, so here's a set of outcomes is deflationary, potentially it goes to negative rates. We don't know, but let's assume there's a tail risk of it. Let's assume there's another larger risk of massive fiscal stimulus finance by the central bank. There's also a risk that the central bank buys stocks or go more QE, you know, it. we go back to the 25% allocation in gold, doesn't seem so stupid, does it? I mean, we're, getting to, we're, we're starting to get to this kind of 40,000 foot overview type of thing, which is very important. But I've been talking about this, uh, Neil Howell calls it the fourth turning. That's right, I'm, I'm speaking to Neil yeah. next week. And I've been talking in the same ideas for a long time. Then I met Neil Howe. It was just remarkable how we had exactly the same ideas, but he was actually much more deep into it. Um, and I realized that uh, we really obviously are going through this and the institutions are not working. People know that something's wrong and they know that the institutions are resisting change as they always do because the elites don't want them to change. And yet they're not working. And so it's, it really has to go. So we, we do have to go through this massive uh, fourth turning of changing the institutions. And obviously the, the, the wealth inequality problem has to be uh, somehow addressed and all of this stuff. And it's the, the, the ultimate uh, magnitude of the change, I think, is much vast, much more severe, much larger than many people appreciate. And uh, it's, it really is the frog getting boiled in the pot. You know, if you could go back to, to, to 1995 uh, or 2005 even in a time machine and explain to people what the world looks like today, they simply would not believe it. No way. No way. It no would have sounded ridiculous. It just doesn't seem possible. But it's happening at such a rapid pace. And, you know, uh, it seems – and the presidential election is just – a microcosm of the whole thing where, you know, it's just, uh, it's that fantastic, the, the world really is characterized by this fantastic computer thing where you listen to, two people can listen to it and one person hears Yanni and the other person hears Laurel. And have you, have you tried that? Yeah. You should Google Yanni yeah, Laurel. I've seen it. It's it, amazing. It's sort of mind blowing. But if, if you, it, it actually has something to do with physiology about how like sound in your ear or something other, because actually I've actually found a way to hear both of them. You have to kind of move around and stuff and you can hear like Yanni, 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 Laurel, 
lower you're like what, what yanni yanni and it goes back to yanni and it, it it really plays with your mind but that's a perfect metaphor for how people process what's happening in our world today through yeah. current events i mean they just simply see something completely different and um it's it it has to get resolved people have to start seeing things the same way again and that's the first turning yes i'm i'm gonna 100 agree with all of this it is because it's so overwhelming that people actually just filter out something so they stick to one truth and there there is no universal truth we all know that it's you know it's it's a blended thing but people can't deal with the magnitude of this right and it's very difficult those of us kind of slightly burdened with financial markets because you go and speak to somebody else and you're like, listen, this is really bad. And there is huge change coming. And I don't really know how it plays out, but it's going to get, get ugly. I think people in financial markets are kind of attuned to it because it's kind of part of their professional life. If you go to um, Wyoming, go to Meeker, Colorado, or go to Wyoming, and you will go to these little towns, it's a different world. I mean, it is, they, people are, they're, they're going through their regular life. They don't watch the news. (laughs) It's, it's amazing how different life is for those that are in major urban centers or in financial markets where you're kind of forced to be hyper aware of all of this dissension. And you go to these kind of quiet hamlets and it feels like it's 1955 or something. Uh, But, and they don't know the, the magnitude of the tension that exists in the, the more densely populated urban centers that are you know, obviously going to have monumental changes uh, in the next five years. So have you caught the Bitcoin bug yet? Bitcoin? I don't believe in Bitcoin. I, I actually have made uh, good advice. I've never bought Bitcoin, but I actually recommended Bitcoin twice and I recommended selling it once and all three of those trades were really good. Maybe I just fundamentally don't believe in it. I, I, I just, I, I don't, I think that it's a lie. I think that it's very tracked traceable. I, I don't think it's anonymous, but it's not, it's not anonymous. But yeah. It's that, was, that, was, that was, it's big allure was, was supposed no. to be anonymous and it's not. no, it is actually a beautifully constructed, pristine asset. It is like gold. It's very divisible. It's transferable. Forget the the can you the anon, the anonymity of it. Forget that. Because of its fixed money supply, it's the only asset with a purely defined money supply. That you know, its flow versus the stock of it is always diminishing. It becomes extremely interesting as a hard asset. I don't really have a, a, a strong opinion about Bitcoin. I, I think it's a fantastic trading vehicle. Yeah, well, obviously, you've got the skill for it. It's got huge volatility. And, and I've, I've actually been positive on Bitcoin pretty much all year. My guess is because of your, your larger big picture construct, spend a bit of time with Bitcoin. I, I think you're going to like it because I looked at it and I, in the end, I couldn't find... Now, it... It's not going to go to zero, but it could fall 50% and never rallies. Fine. Sure. I, but I can't find anything with the skew of risk-reward where I'm not paying option premium. There's no time decay. For me, it just even when I look at, you know, you like charts too, I look at the chart versus gold, chart versus equities, chart versus almost any asset. And it's like, okay, this is breaking out against every single thing on 
daily charts, weekly charts, monthly charts. I'm like, okay, yeah. this is really super interesting. I hear what you're saying. I'm, I'm, I'm not at all a Bitcoin hater. Is what is no, what? It's just make. not something you do. I, I just I I prefer I prefer things that I can put in the trunk of my car. <laughs> I, I prefer you know gold or or really really precious stones, you know stuff like that. I, I believe in that. Um, and they're not terribly liquid, but I like that sort of stuff. I've, I've got quite the art collection, you know, that kind of stuff. And I just enjoy it. I, I, I like that more than I, I don't, I don't really need wealth preservation anymore. I, I, I just want peace of mind and, and, uh, lifestyle quality. So I, I prefer, uh, my Mondrian on the wall to a, uh, digital entry that has the same value. Yeah, I get it. I get it. And why? And why would you not? Yeah. Let's say we're in the middle of the fourth turning. It should happen because we're we're at the election point. We've got the big crisis. We've got the debt thing. I mean, almost everything should be in place that Neil talked about that we've all been looking at. What's the big trade outside of gold? Forget gold. We all, I think, a lot of us agree with that. When it comes, and it, it's you know these things aren't setting up yet. I, 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 I don't see it. Yet. I like that permanent portfolio concept. I'm yeah. just going to, I'm going to stay there. I, I want massive diversification. I'm worried about deflation. And so cash sounds good. I'm worried about the inflationary response. So gold sounds good. I don't like the dollar in any case. And so at a, at a pullback, I would uh, so substantially uh, with a big, big pullback, I would substantially buy stocks. But at this level, I think 25% is really basically all I can stomach. Uh, in, in the stock market. So it's just this, it's just this kind of four uh, pillared, uh, highly diversified thing. And, you know, the other thing is, I don't, I, I feel like we said earlier, the opportunities that are really good are very rare. And I want to have liquidity when the next one comes, because I think it's coming in a couple of years, not 20 years, maybe five years, it's very outside, but maybe very well two years or 18 months and so the trade is to wait for that trade and where do you think that trade's going to come is it going to be credit is it going to be equity is it going to what, what what do you think the trade that's going to set up is the one that makes I, you I go i'm waiting for this i think equity but we're talking about a pe in the single digits when it happens yeah I, I turned positive March of 2009 on equities because everybody was so bearish and the PE for about two days was actually below 10 on the S&P 500. Unfortunately, I sold out with about a 50% gain, you know, because it was just, it was just too easy. But um, I think that's coming again and um, it will be, you know, it will be a, quite a uh, pleasant experience to not be on the, uh, in the car on the first hill of the roller coaster that's coming. So I just, yeah, I, I just don't, I, I just want to be very low risk right now. Yeah. And you might be able to make some money shorting it as well. If it plays out that way. Yeah, I, I, I probably will uh, short. I, I'm, I, I don't really want to, to press shorts right now, uh, but I, I, I do think there's a trade on the short side. Jeffrey, listen, thank you very much for your time. A really great conversation. Thoroughly enjoyed it. I did too. Thanks a lot. And good luck. Yeah. And you take care. Bye now. podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads 
Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.